0: the SPS Digital Learning Hour,
1: brought to you by the Digital Learning and Assessment Department.
0: Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Mike Thomas.
1: And I'm Suzanne Zargis.
0: We're bringing you the latest news in Springfield Public Schools in regards to technology, along with inspiring interviews from teachers who are using technology in the classroom.
1: We'll also inform you of latest updates, practices, and news as it pertains to our district. Whether you are new to using technology in the classroom or are a seasoned vet, we are here to help.
0: Thanks for joining us today. In case you missed it, this week's blog post is up and it's a 2 part So today's first part of the blog talks about using some of the new features in Brightspace. Things that you can get turned on by emailing BLA support at SpringfieldPublicSchools.com. Things that include the nav bar and the activity feed and video assignments, which we are so excited about and we are hoping that you will try and enjoy too.
1: In case you missed it, There's a new look to Brightspace this year, and part of that new look involves the exact location of some of the widgets. You may notice that content has shifted down a bit. Don't think that it's disappeared. Simply scroll down, and you'll find it a little bit lower than it used to be.
0: That's it for In Case You Missed It. Coming up next, Hot Takes. welcome back so my hot take this week comes from an article from Ed Utopia called teaching adolescents how to evaluate the quality of online information now I don't know about you but anytime we've done I've done research with students and they've had to look online for things they end up not being sure of what they're looking for and if it's even accurate i remember one social studies project where they were looking up explorer information and on one of the websites that the students found and they're like oh this is such a great website there's so much information here said that christopher columbus was born in akron ohio he went to college at yale and All these outlandish, fake things. And I know that's one of the big things right now we're hearing all across the United States is this whole idea of fake media, fake news. And I think one of the ways that we can combat that and help students find what is real is by teaching them these strategies that they talk about in the article.
1: Yeah, this is a great article, Mike. I I loved um, how it very uh, neatly gave effective strategies for helping students Um, understand what's relevant in what they're reading. I was very much um, intrigued by their survey results from 2012 where over 70% of the students' responses suggested that they rarely attend to source features such as author, venue, or publication type to evaluate reliability and author perspective. And when they do refer to source features in their explanations, their judgments are often vague, superficial, and lacking in reasoned justification. 70%, that's a much higher percentage than I thought was
0: true. I know though, if if you were here with us right now, you would see how I actually highlighted all that section because 70% is a lot. That is seven out of 10. So if I think of my class with 30 students, seven out of 10, that's, 28 out of 30 students, if you have 30 students in your class, of course, that think this way. Now, this was a study on, seemed like mostly middle school students. Um, they were 777th graders. So depending on where you live and where you went to school, my middle school, my first two years of middle school was actually in a high school. So it was all together. So for us, it was just high school. And so that's part of being in Vermont, of course, you know, being out middle of the woods, everybody goes together. So depending on what school you're at, it could be middle school, but that they are more concerned with the relevance than with the credibility. And so this, to me, this is like the TMZ culture, like show me the quick hit, show me the famous people. If a famous person is saying it's got to be true without looking at the relevance of it at all.
1: Exactly.
0: And like figuring out so like where that information is coming from. Is it biased? I mean, the answer to that part is most information is biased. So
1: right, and it to me the the first thing that came to mind was just the the speed of everything today. I think there's a lot of students who don't want to put in the time and effort to find out if what they're reading is true or to read multiple articles to really compare and contrast and get to the truth, but that's definitely what we need to be teaching our students,
0: yeah, and I really like that they pointed out that. This is not going to go away with isolated teaching. It needs to be embedded into instruction of your content areas, science, social studies, math, English needs to be a part of it, not. Today we're going to learn about how to find source information and see if it's accurate. Tomorrow we're going to continue looking at Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's not, they don't jive when they're by themselves. So it's something that needs to be like, To understand Romeo and Juliet, it's helpful to understand the times that it takes place in. If when you look up information and it tells you that it was shot on a back lot in Los Angeles, then you're talking about a movie and not the book and the time and place where it was. So I think just being able to understand where that information comes from and that it's okay to be skeptical of it.
1: Right. And I think it's a, a skill that as adults, hopefully is very automatic to all of us to not just take whatever we're reading at face value. I'm equating it to teaching those primary grade levels where as an adult, so many things are automatic. And of mm-hmm. course, two plus two is four, or of course that word says cat, or of course, you know, whatever the concept is, to bring yourself down to that primary level um. is is a talent to be able to put it into words in a way that, um, is new and under, able mm-hmm. for the students to understand. So again, with this ability, uh, we have to remember that what's automatic for us is not automatic for our students, and we have to um, scaffold them and give them all the supports that they need to understand that, yes, it's going to take time and effort, but in the end, uh, they'll be much better off.
0: Yeah, it's all about teaching those critical evaluation skills. that are so important to understanding what you're reading. So not just like I'm reading a book and I'm trying to understand what that book it means to me, but being able to look at the relevance of the information, um, the level of importance with it. Um, is it stated explicitly? Is it something that you need to infer um, the accuracy? Um, and this comes back to, is it fact? We see this all the time with the news right now is, what is we have to ask the question? What is fact? And I think twenty, thirty years ago, when it came to the news, like we didn't necessarily ask those questions, and so it makes you wonder, like, well, if we're asking this now. What about then? And like, were they able to have these critical evaluation skills as reporters? um Again, also like thinking about um the bias and the perspective. So if I'm a conservative person, everything I'm going to think is going to have that slant to it. If I'm a, a liberal person, everything I have is going to have that slant to it. If I am progressive, everything's going to have those slants to it. If I live like a hermit in the, on a beach somewhere, everything is going to have that perspective to it. And so I think it's under it's important to understand where that's coming from and again with all of this like the reliability. Are we getting our news from somewhere reliable or are we getting it from some 12-year-old sitting in his parents' basement making up wild and crazy stories.
1: Right, so everything you just mentioned, Mike, the relevance, the accuracy, the bias and perspective, and the reliability, those are all dimensions of critical evaluation. And it's important for teachers to talk with their students about these multiple dimensions and to make sure that there are clear definitions and that there's discussion about what the students understand these pieces are And um, this article goes on to say that, you know, it's important to encourage students to compare these terms and um, to also look at multiple people's viewpoints and what his or her agenda may be in relation to a specific affiliation. So all of that is combined in this just this one strategy of teaching adolescents how to evaluate the quality of online information. There are three other strategies in this article, Mike. What's the second one?
0: Modeling and practice, which, of course, is what we were just talking about. Um, having Taking the time to show your students what it looks like and then scaffolding them to be able to do it themselves um, so that they can verify and refute online information, investigate authors' credentials. And that goes back to who wrote this? Is it a 20-year-old guy sitting in a college dorm or is it a... Um, experienced news reporter out in the field. Um, figuring out what that bias and stance is. Again, that goes back to doing a little bit of research. And then, this last point of it for the model and practice is the negotiating multiple perspectives. Like being able to take information from multiple sources, from multiple people with multiple viewpoints, and putting that together, you'll get a closer idea to what is real and what is not, what is fake. Uh-huh tends to fall apart when you start to do those things.
1: Right, because they can't go very deep on their arguments when when it's not fact. And this is one of the most important ones in my mind, um, because it, it states that you need to have repeated opportunities for students. And I think it's very, very difficult for adolescents to be able to hear a viewpoint that differs from their own and not get defensive. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be right, everybody wants to be heard. And going back to one of our podcasts last year, the ability to hear what people are Mm -hmm. saying to you, to think critically, it all comes into play with this.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of the, like the whole 15 minutes of fame thing where everyone wants to be known, everyone wants to be heard, everyone wants to be seen. And right now, even when you watch the news, you see people getting defensive without having all the facts together. And so like being able to, especially some um, the multiple perspectives, like I have my opinion. You have your opinion, and we have to both be okay with each other's opinion. Doesn't mean we agree. It kind of goes into that whole like tolerance, like, what does tolerance really mean? Is it, does it mean acceptance? Or like, that's a whole big area, which we're not going to focus on in this podcast because that's a philosophical debate for another day. Um, but it comes back to those kind of things. What I liked also about this article is while for the critical evaluation part, like they didn't really give us much that you can do as a teacher other than ask a few questions. With the model and practice, they actually have a couple of curriculum-based lesson plan type things, planning guides that you can actually click on. So in the show notes, you'll see a link to all of this. One of the other sections is all about prompting. Again, it's about asking questions. Like you need to ask questions about what you're looking at to figure out if it's accurate or not.
1: What I found interesting in this piece of the article, Mike, was that um, adolescents, when reading on the internet, often distort or disregard new ideas that contradict their thinking and revise their reading path to focus only on locating details that confirm their thinking. I I never thought of that before. I never knew that before, that they would actually revise their reading path to only find what supports their thinking. And uh, so what they're suggesting is that the prompts can ask students to systematically look for evidence that both supports and refutes key claims.
0: It may, when, when you were reading that, all I could think of is the Facebook algorithm, which has been in the news a lot over the last few years, is, especially with this last election cycle. Like Those people who think like candidate A, they get a lot of news in their Facebook feed from or about positive things for candidate A. And then the same thing goes for candidate B. If they have expressed interest, then Facebook's algorithms then take what they read once or liked and then start giving them things that go along with that side of the argument. So on Facebook, where I know this article doesn't talk about it, but it was on the news recently that's uh, there's a lot of people across this country who get their news from Facebook, which is kind of scary because with Facebook's algorithm, they only see their side of it.
1: Right. And I think particularly young people fall into that category of getting their, their news from Facebook. Right. I, of course, am still looking for the, the main channels, <laughs> 4, 5, and 7, uh, that hardly exist anymore. but. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't know about 4, 5, and 7 because we're out in Western Mass and where you live is not Western Mass. Um, so for here, it's 22, 43, and 61. And then I don't know what channel, NECN, but that's for out here too. But we digress. Too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it comes back to like, this is just confirming what I think we're already seeing with a lot of people's thinking is once they have their th- opinions, they are stuck like glue to it. And so helping students kind of get over that, um, go back to those three things that you kind of mentioned, that considering new ideas may be more accurate than their original, weighing the usefulness and reliability of these ideas against what they previously believed, recognizing ideas that might otherwise be ignored. And so, again, it comes back to teaching these things. And there's uh, this article, again, why I really liked it, it gave some tools to help with that. Because me as a teacher... I would be like wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to teach this? This is not something, this is something I inherently know. Because we, I think a lot of times when we're teachers, we have a hard time teaching things that we believe are inherent. And so for me, this is something that would be hard for me to teach. Because like, I inherently know that Joe Schmo's blog might not be the most accurate uh, place to get my news. But if I go to Mass Live or WWLP, I might get more accurate news that way. I might not get the whole story because they have their bias. They have their slant and viewpoint. So I have to go to multiple sources. I know in the past I have gone for my election news coverage. I've gone back and forth. I usually will read three sites. The Fox News site, the CNN site, and the MSNBC site. Read all three of them and kind of compare them. And then kind of get my own understanding based upon what I read but that's because I have these skills. They, to me, they're inherent now, which goes back to how do they become inherent, which is from that practice at a younger age, which is what you were mentioning a little bit ago.
1: Exactly, not an easy skill to learn, but definitely one that uh, is important and should be a daily practice. The last uh, strategy on here, Mike, is things to consider as a healthy skeptic.
0: You mean everything that we hear and read is not always true? (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, <It> was...
1: <laughs> no. That it's it's true, right? I mean, everything you read, that's pretty much the way you have to think. Is this true? Where is it coming from? Who's who's saying it? You know, what's mm-hmm. their angle? Um, in this article, it says your curriculum can be a great springboard for introducing students to multiple perspectives and new ways of thinking about content. What jumped out at me in, at this part point was. Uh, the fact that they said adolescents also like working in small groups as they grapple with these issues and then meet with the whole class to exchange strategies. So, so much goes into that one statement. You know, with the small groups, you've got the whole collaboration factor going on. You have the fact um, that students are more comfortable talking with their peers sometimes than speaking in front of a whole class. That could go both ways. Mm -hmm. And as things always intertwine with the topics we discuss, this uh easily flows into what I'm going to speak about in a, in a couple of minutes um, introverts we talked about this once before uh last mm-hmm. year in our podcast with with all the push towards collaboration. how do the introverts fare and um so i won't I won't go into great detail, mm-hmm. but um these small groups I think are perfect to to give introverts a chance to um, vocalize their opinions in a setting where they're not, they're not
2: threatened.
0: Yeah. And I even think not just to vocalize their opinions, but to hear opinions of others, mm-hmm. which kind of helps you become a skeptic in what you're thinking is when you start hearing other people's opinions and their viewpoints. I know I've been in many a classes and in many a situations where I'll listen to More than I'll talk because I want to hear what other people are thinking and what one event might mean to them means could mean something completely different to me. And so by having a common understanding that we're going to listen to each other to understand each other, that helps us become a skeptic in my way is not always the right way. Let me hear your way type thinking. And I like that um, to kind of help with the being a healthy skeptic. There's about a half a dozen questions here that a teacher can ask in conversation with students, or you could even, as I'm thinking about how would this uh, this part apply to teaching those small groups, you give them a checklist of these questions to make sure that like someone's asking them, like, and then maybe further on down the road, instead of having the checklist those questions become natural and become a part of the conversation instead of making the conversation. I don't know if that necessarily makes sense.
1: No, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, It's all a matter of practice, doing it again and again and again until it does become an automatic thought process. It's something that I've tried to instill in my daughter, Uh, Mm -hmm. She's 18, or I should say 19, because she's so close to 19. You know, very, very emotional, very enthusiastic, very um, adamant about her opinions. Mm -hmm. And um, I've just tried consistently to make her aware of every point of view and directed her towards, you know, whatever the topic is, both sides of the story and why someone might be saying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So hopefully... That is ingrained in her to the point mm-hmm. where it's automatic. Um, I'll keep you updated. on that.
0: <laughs> so with this article, like a lot of the things that we've talked about and we read about, you have to start at a younger age. That's why I think they, when they did their survey, they did middle school. Because for the first five years or so of school, students are just kind of gaining knowledge, not necessarily needing to apply that knowledge all the time. They need to know how to do... 2 plus 2 to go do the Pythagorean theorem. They need to know how to read so that they can turn around and read War and Peace. I've never read War and Peace, but I hear that's a high school thing. They need to know how to do certain things, so that's why that middle school age is like really important because those are when students um te- typically start to form their own opinions, have their own thoughts um that are they believe are their own creation but in reality it comes from the knowledge that they have already and then they start to express them and so i think that's why like with this article check like with their survey being of that age i think it's really good because those students if they're not caught in that middle school time of like trying to do some of these things so that they can really understand what they're reading online then it's going to be harder and we're going to run into the problem where we have with many adults right now
1: exactly yeah, very very important. And um, with ne- with technology the way it is, we're in a, a perfect time because number one, ease of access in all the mm-hmm. classrooms now, students can very easily read hundreds of different articles on one topic, mm-hmm. and so that for when it comes to practice, there's unlimited amounts of practice that they can get uh, simply because they can read everything online. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, going back to, I believe, last week's podcast, uh, with the learning tools in Mm OneNote—correct me if I'm wrong. We
0: did mention that.
1: um, It will add the source of the document, Mm -hmm. um, so teachers can also track that and notice if a student is consistently going to particular sources that may not be accurate, Mm -hmm. and then correct them, and direct them in the right way.
0: Or even have a very strong bias to one right. one side or the other.
1: Which could lead into another lesson,
0: right? Exactly. Um, and for those of you who are saying, hey, I remember they talked about OneNote and she just mentioned it again. Coming up later this month in blog posts, I'm just going to plug it now because it'll make sense. Um, we're doing a series on OneNote and all of its features. So look out for that. This article again is from Edutopia. If you're not a subscriber or a reader of it, you can follow me on Twitter at MikeSPSDLA because I am and I get, I'll retweet a lot of stuff from Edutopia because I find the articles really interesting. This one again is all about media literacy, teaching adolescents how to evaluate the quality of online information.
1: Take this week we did a little um, switch up this week <laughs> I think because typically Mike is the one who oftentimes finds a video as part of his article <laughs> and I am old school I like to read not necessarily view video I like to print I like to write my notes um, but this time I found a video and um, I thought it was it was very um, interesting, and I wanted to share it. So I started to talk about it earlier um, in relation to the adolescents working in small groups. This video that I found um, has to do with introverts, and it is from EdTech Magazine, and it's an interview with Susan Kane at a conference called EduCause. And I was unfamiliar with that conference, but it looks like a great one. Um, Susan Kane is the author of Quiet and also the founder of Quiet Revolution. And she is uh, looking to how to harness the power of introverts. And this came to mind. I, I kind of did a Google search on introverts after we had a demo of a product that involved a lot of videoing. So teachers videoing, students videoing. Um, and it just popped in my head, gee, some people love being on video. Some people love that 15 minutes of fame being in the front of the classroom Mm -hmm. all the time. They eat that up. They love it. But what happens to the students that don't want to be on camera, that don't want to be front and center all the time? And so that's what she is, uh, working on. And she's trying to basically get both the introverts and the extroverts to, understand that they need to work together to be the best that they can be. And, um, she emphasized the fact as we all, well, as introverts know, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, uh, you, you need quiet to be creative. So it's awesome to collaborate with your peers and to brainstorm and to just put any idea out there, but introverts need to have that quiet time in order to be creative and uh, one of her goals is to be in every school to help teachers understand that
0: yeah i know as i when i watched the video um, that was the thing that stuck out the most with me is this idea of having that quiet space and for so many things that we do when we're teaching is not there's not a lot of isolated thinking and learning going on there's a lot of group think going on. and in some ways, that could be detrimental to the introverts because they're then forced to put on a show, put it's on a mask. And I think she actually mentioned that in the video, too, where, like, when she started working in, like, Silicon Valley, she's like, oh, it's going to be introvert heaven. And then she got there and realized that there was a lot of collaboration going on, a lot of people working together. And it was kind of one of those, like, she was hoping for that situation where she could be that in creative introvert and working that way. And I know I do this a lot is I'll put my headphones on and I'll just, if I had a door, I would close it to my office. This is not my office, if you heard that door close just a second ago. Um, But I put my headphones on and I turn away from being able to see out my peripheral so I could just focus and work. Because for me, that creative time, and this happened yesterday, actually, when I was working on the (laughs) OneNote blog is where I had a burst of creativity. And I just put my headphones on. I turned the music up loud so I couldn't hear anything else going on. Because sometimes this office gets pretty loud.
1: Yes, it does.
0: And so for me, I needed that quiet time because that's part of my introverted personality. Mm -hmm. I I related a lot to what she was talking about in the article.
1: Yeah, I did too. And I think it's... It's a challenge uh, for teachers. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from teachers and, and other listeners out there to hear how they manage this in the classroom. Because um, yes, we have a lot of technology, we've mm-hmm. got a lot of collaboration, we've got great project-based learning going on, but we need to offer those introverts quiet time. And just as your article addressed hearing other people's points of view and, and valuing all of that and understanding or hearing where people are coming from, that goes right into the introvert-extrovert situation, where extroverts need to understand that just because someone's an introvert doesn't mean that they do not have value to add to the group, mm-hmm. that they may work in a small group and um, you know, have all these, these fabulous ideas, and it may be the extrovert that goes to stand up in front of the classroom and present it all. Right. But to not think that just because someone is quiet that they don't have something to say. They need to think deeply and they need to focus without interruption. That's a huge challenge right there, right, Mike? That goes for both our our situation and the classroom to allow students time to focus without interruption. Anyone who has mastered that, please let us know
0: (laughs) yes please leave us a message because it's definitely difficult to be able to have that quiet focus time i mean we live in a world where it's just constant noise Uh, you wake up in the morning what do you usually wake up to if you've got your body finely tuned nothing if you don't then there's either an alarm or kids or a coffee pot going off or Whatever it is that gets you up in the morning, generally has something to do with noise. And when we get up and we start our morning routines, we turn the news on. And then we start listening to the news as we're doing other things. There's noise there, the clattering. I mean, even like the clattering of plates and cups, there's noise. We get outside, there's cars zooming by as we're going to our car. We get in our car, we turn it on, radio's on, music's on. So we're constantly inundated with noise. Especially if you live in a city because cities can tend to be noisier, and that's purely for the fact that there's more people around and so having that time that's why I think a lot of people love like artist retreats, or there's a place in Northampton it's like a um it's like an artist art artsy type retreat thing where you go away and it's like quiet and you learn how to do something new. It's why a lot of people will go to monasteries to have a uh, vow of silence or not me i wouldn't be able to do wouldn't be able to last five hours uh, awake silent. Uh, but like people go out and do these things writers will go rent a cabin out in the middle of the woods on a mountain where nobody else is around why do you think that is no noise so it allows them to think and allow their creative juices to flow so Yep. Very,
1: um, very complicated topic. I think I'd love to hear from some teachers mm-hmm. out there because I know I've worked with um, teachers who are very much the extroverts and I've worked with teachers who are very much the introvert. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this has sparked some some curiosity on your part. Again, this was in EdTech magazine. You can go to that website online. And this was the interview with Susan Kane
0: at the Educause These were our hot takes. Coming up next is our interview with Aaron O'Brien.
2: O'Brien. I am teaching third grade at Kensington International School. I'm also the technology coordinator here, and this is going to be my sixth year teaching in Springfield.
0: In the last six years, you've seen a lot of technology come and go. What are some of the things that, when you first started, you still use today?
2: Out of necessity, I have been using Brightspace since we first started. Then it was just an assessment tool, and now I use it for all sorts of things. I also have been using the smart boards, the laptops, the uh, Elmos, and a lot of programs that go along with those.
0: You said teaching third grade. Has it been difficult with getting the students transitioning into using technology, or do you find that they are more digitally capable than you expected?
2: When I first started teaching, it was a very hard transition because there was no exposure prior to third grade or not a lot. Hmm. And now, since there's a lot more laptop cards and a lot more exposure to technology across the grade levels, it's much easier when they come to third grade because they are using technology in kindergarten, first and second. So I've noticed a big shift over the past six years, and it's much better now.
0: So you mentioned using Brightspace. Um, Out of all the tools within Brightspace, what has been your favorite?
2: I think the discussion threads. And I think that because it gives every student, regardless of their English proficiency or um, comfortability with speaking, a fair chance. Because in when you have a conversation in the classroom, a lot of students don't feel comfortable raising their hand and speaking in front of their peers. But on Brightspace with discussion threads, they can because there isn't that pressure of what are my peers going to say when I speak in front of them. It's all digital so they can communicate their thoughts fully. And it really is a great discourse for all the students.
0: If we think back six years um, and you're just, I, how long have you guys had the smart boards in the room? And like that first year, you said it was a little tough getting students caught up in using technology. So can you tell us more about that?
2: I think I got the smart board in my room, my the spring of my second year. And then we've gotten more, almost every classroom has a smart board or bright links. Mm-hmm. Um, in their classroom now. And I think even just having that for teachers who aren't fully comfortable using laptops and going in depth with those, everyone's using their smart board. So that's really exposing all of our students to technology because they're engaging with it instead of just using a whiteboard. They're using the interactive boards.
0: So in thinking of the SAMR model, what are some examples that you've done that are at the higher end? Um,
2: we, I. In our third grade team, we like to offer a lot of student choice. So I think that goes hand in hand with the SAMR model. And for example, we have end of unit projects in science and social studies. So we give them choice on how to present their information. So if they were doing, uh, I think one of the projects we did a couple years ago was on the regions of Massachusetts. So the students got to choose a technology tool on how to demonstrate the the mastery of their standards so they could do something where they wrote information on a word document or they could do a PowerPoint or a board builder, or they could create a video that demonstrates all of their learning. So I think giving the choice, and then we had to scaffold each tool Mm -hmm. obviously, but that allowed them to redefine their thinking and how to demonstrate.
0: Other than that particular idea that you were just discussing, Um, What are some other ways that you've integrated technology into your lessons?
2: So I use technology in a lot of different ways. So I think one of the best parts about technology is it allows the teacher to differentiate the instruction. So if I have a student who finishes their worksheet or something with a partner and they're ready for the next step, Instead of giving them like a hard copy of something, I give them the opportunity to go online and explore that standard. So just to learn more, to um, deepen their understanding, and then do it in a different way. So I think, and then on the other side of that, students who need more support, there's more programs online that can scaffold the instruction there. And then also it could be something creating an engaging lesson. So instead of watching a movie on the smart board or something to showcase a science experiment or something in social studies or math, I can put an individual, like on discovery ed, an individual assignment for the students that helps them go further in their understanding.
0: So what are some ways that you've seen students grow because of the use of technology? So
2: students sometimes think when they complete an assignment, they're done, right? There's no more learning to do. But then with technology, you can go to a million different places and expand their knowledge. And I think that is something that is helping our students become 21st century learners because they are taking a skill, like finding equivalent fractions. If I teach them one way, they can go onto the computer and learn seven more ways. And one of those ways might be more beneficial for that particular student. So I think it helps expand the learning from the classroom to the world.
0: Yeah. So if you had the opportunity to stand uh, last week in the district is all the new hires they have. They go through everything within the district. If you had the opportunity to stand in front of them, what advice would you give, whether it is technology based or not?
2: So I think everybody, majority of people get into teaching to change lives or to change the world. That's the impression you come to when your first day of school. You're so excited. And technology is a great way to do that. Springfield and the district has provided us with enough technology tools where we can change the lives of the students, we can change everything. And I think keeping that in mind when they go into the classroom is so important, because you can stand in front of a room and you can teach 30 students but then you can support your instruction with technology and it can go anywhere. And I think being able to take chances and remembering that it doesn't have to be perfect, be flexible. I think that would be great advice or just something to keep in mind when you are entering the classroom. Just know that the students can go further than ever expect.
0: With this year upon us, we're currently sitting in your building. They're doing construction. <laughs> it's PD week. What are some of the things you're looking forward to with this year?
2: I just want to see what we can uncover. Like I, I find myself proficient in technology, but there's so many things that I haven't even tapped into yet. And I think that's what's so exciting to remember. And that kind of draws all the teachers together, mm-hmm. which is exciting to have with this common thought or belief that we don't even know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And there's so many ways to explore different avenues. And I think it's just going to be fun to just keep going with what we started to do.
0: So any of the things that you've done for PD this week that you're super excited about integrating into your classroom?
2: I did uh, trainings. One was on a book study, Teaching with Poverty Mind. Really excited about that and getting all of our teachers on board, which they already are. So that's great. (laughs) And the new science standards. We learned about STEM scopes and I can't wait to explore that. It's the online digital tool for the new next generation science standards. And I can't wait to unpack those standards and use that digital tool mm. to support our instruction.
0: So you just mentioned STEM scopes. And for me personally, I don't know what they are. So and I'm going to guess a lot of our listeners don't either. So could you possibly explain that to us?
2: Sure, I can try. <laughs> <laughs> STEM scopes is a digital platform where... The next generation science standards are rolled out. So it, the UPGs and the assessments are aligned with this digital tool. So it gives you um, resources, lesson plans, activities, kind of like a similar textbook, but digitally online for the different science units for each grade.
0: So like a digital curriculum.
2: Yes. Well, I'm, I'm excited for technology. I feel like Everybody in the district is at a different level of comfortability and proficiency with technology, but just if we just keep going, keep trying, keep failing, keep <laughs> picking it up after we fail, I think we can really get our students to be in a spot where they're competitive with suburban districts and ready for college.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for your time. I know this is PD Week, and it is always a very busy week, and so we thank you for Kind of talking about her experience in the district and a lot of the things that she has learned and has used in the classroom, I actually went and looked up what STEM scopes were after that interview. And I have to say, you are a science teacher or you're an elementary school teacher who has to teach science. This site looks awesome and it looks like it will be a great tool to use. I know it was like the last thing she mentioned and it's the first thing I'm mentioning, but um, yeah, so STEM scopes pretty awesome. Look into it.
1: Excellent. Great interview, Mike. Thank you so much for that. You know, Some other key takeaways I got from that interview were Erin's um, thoughts on how students in kindergarten, first and second grade are so much uh, more exposed now to technology. And so she's having an easier time in third grade. That's awesome. That can only get better from this point out. Um, I loved how she uses a discussion tool in Brightspace, you know, almost intertwining with our introvert discussion, these ELL students who are a little shy to speak in front of the class. Discussion tool in Brightspace is the way to go. Giving students choice in how they present. Love it. Easier for teachers to differentiate. All good. Most importantly, the fact that uh, she continues to say to teachers who may be a little um, hesitant with technology, take those chances. Don't be afraid to take a chance. Be flexible and to know that your students can go further than you expect.
0: Yeah, and I know that she also mentioned like the idea of like being proficient in technology, but there's still still so much to learn. I feel the same way and I'm sitting here doing this podcast with you.
1: I'm right there with you.
0: And so like we see questions all the time. That's part of what we do outside of this podcast is we try to help teachers integrate technology into their daily classroom. And we see questions all the time of varying levels. Like there's a whole reason why on Microsoft Stream we made all these training videos because they're for people at different levels of using Brightspace. The board builder, like some people wouldn't even try it if they hadn't actually seen a video on how to do it in the first place. And so like just everybody being at a different level And for those people who are still afraid of technology, who handwrite notes and put them in teacher's mailboxes, to those people who send like digital, I wanted to think of something cooler than saying emails, but I couldn't think of anything cooler than emails to continue that line of thinking. Maybe it's going to be like soon, pretty soon we'll get like those digital thoughts where you think something (laughs) and you say in your brain, Suzanne, and then you say what you're thinking in your brain. And then Suzanne gets that message.
1: That will be an interesting day.
0: I'm telling you, with all the stuff that Elon Musk is doing, I'm sure it's going to come sooner rather than later. Because how are we going to talk to each other on Mars?
1: (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, Mike. i got to think about that one.
0: (laughs) So, Erin O'Brien, she um, is over at Kensington. We thank her for her time. For this week, we're gonna come back to the same question we asked on our last podcast, which is all about digital note-taking. So what are your thoughts? How do you feel about using the tools that are out there? What tools do you use? Just tell us what you think. Um, You can find, we'd love to hear from you. We have a Yammer group going and that Yammer is up to 959 users, which out of the 2,500 users in the district, we're almost halfway there. So, which is great. So hopefully, you guys can respond to it there. You can post it in the group. The group is a wide open group, so all you have to do is join to see what's going on in there. You could also hit us up at Twitter. Uh, I am Mike, at Mike, SPS, DLA.
1: I'm at Suzanne, SPS, DLA.
0: Or you could just send us a straight up email, DLA support at rules.com Or if you are still not sure about this email thing, you can send us snail mail, through interoffice. I know it works because the box where the interoffice stuff comes and goes sits right outside where our desks are. However you want to communicate to us, We are listening. Also, pay attention on Yammer because we're starting to ask questions about what are some of the things that you would like more knowledge of on how to use, whether it's Brightspace or Office tools or how to integrate into technology. We're starting to post questions to figure out next steps of training for people. So make sure you check those things out. I am Mike Thomas.
1: I'm Suzanne Sargis. And
0: we'll see you next week.